0: Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today, and made possible by the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. Once a month, we'll spotlight the many efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. Here's the host of the Hat Soil Health Podcast, Eric Pfeiffer. The conversation today, do you really need a seed treatment or not? And joining me today to discuss that is an expert from Penn State University, associate professor and extension specialist, John Tooker. John, thank you so much for joining us today. And we're we're talking about seed treatments and are they really needed and more so are they really needed as much as they're being used? I'm reading an article that you published this past summer uh, talking about probably the largest deployments of insecticides in U.S. history. I'm guessing we're probably on pace for that again uh, this coming planting season as we get ready to move through that time of year. Give me some of your thoughts on on this and and ultimately what your solution to the the proposed problem is.
1: Sure thing, Eric. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, The bottom line is that a lot of seed treatments aren't necessary. And that's not because the insecticidal portion of the seed treatment can't kill insects or doesn't kill insects. It's that the insect pests are relatively common. Most of the insect species that are targeted by the insecticidal coatings on those seeds, whether it's corn or soybeans or other crop species, um, are called secondary pests. Um, They're secondary pests because they're not the primary concern. They're a secondary concern. Um, And their populations are pretty sporadic, um, and they can be pretty hard to find. So just from that perspective, deploying insecticides when there's no need um, seems unnecessary to me and perhaps even wasteful. Um, Just as importantly, uh, farmers pay for those seed treatments, so their seed costs are a little bit higher um, because they're doing that. Um, And if the insects aren't around, again, I think they might be wasting their money. When the insect is around, certainly the uh, products can provide uh, a level of protection. But the level of protection that growers might get from those insecticides coated on the seeds is probably shorter than they might anticipate. So a lot of marketing material that accompanies those seeds say you get 45 to 60 days of protection from the insecticides coated on the seeds. Um, research that came out of Purdue University by a colleague named Christian Krupke found that it's actually two to three weeks maximum that you're seeing a benefit of those seed treatments. So not only are you um, potentially deploying an insecticide against insects that probably aren't around, you're also um, only providing, only getting two to three weeks of control, um, which isn't exactly what the market material says. So the last question you asked is what is an alternative uh, well, an alternative is just understanding your local pest populations. So that would involve scouting and knowing what pests typically are in your fields. And if you go a couple years using, um, say, untreated seed and never see a wireworm or never see a uh, white grub or something like that, um, then you're probably in pretty good shape to try untreated seeds on a on a, a fairly limited acreage. Um, in In scouting exercises that we've done here in Pennsylvania, and my colleague Christian Krupke has done in Indiana, we have a hard time finding many of the pest species that these insecticides are targeting. And we've targeted our scouting efforts in fields that haven't seen these insecticides in a while. So um, the bottom line for me is we're deploying insecticides that may not be necessary. They're not providing as much control as we might think. And there is a viable alternative just by understanding your local pest populations
0: so so john uh, let's let's move back a little bit here. How did we get here? How did we get to the point where farmers think that maybe it's a necessity that they have to apply these uh, despite what you're telling me where it you know they may not actually be doing much of anything for farmers at this point, uh, given that they may not be uh, they may not actually have these insects in their field.
1: Yeah, so there's a little bit of a story in that, and it's slightly different for both corn and soybeans. Um, but the bottom line is there was a, an impetus to have it on the seeds um, in soybeans. That was in the mid-2000s for um, a pest called bean leaf beetle. There was this outbreak in Iowa, and so there was a, um, there was a, a, a fast effort to get the seed coatings approved for that pest species but after that initial burst of problem in Iowa, the problem has kind of decreased. But since it would seem to provide an added value, um, the treatments have kind of persisted. Um, In corn, of course, the seed treatment uh, appears to provide a little bit more value because you have fewer seeds per acre compared to soybeans um, and um, seed treatments are easily applied and they're easily used Farmer doesn't have to do anything extra. It used to be that you could buy the treatment and put it on your seeds yourself, but seed companies started doing that, started to do that for you. And so now, when you buy the bag, it comes in the um, as part of the suite of insecticidal traits and treatments, whether it's a BT trait or a seed coating. So now it's just kind of standard practice, um, and it seems that seed companies um, can get at a slightly higher cost for a bag of treated seed than a bag of untreated seed, um, and they appear to like um, that benefit. And it is this additional add-on that farmers don't see um, usually like laid out on an invoice. It's kind of rolled in with the overall cost and they might not recognize um, the extra cost so they might not think it's that much. Um, but through a variety of paths, I guess it's become kind of a standard operating procedure to have the coating on um, corn and it's getting more so common on, on soybeans. Uh, I don't deal with cotton much, but my understanding is that it's standard on cotton as well.
0: You're listening to the Hat Soil Health Podcast presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems of Indiana. You can find them at ccsin.org. I'm with John Tooker with Penn State University Extension Specialist. and uh, Let's kind of look at this, John. I mean, obviously, this is the Hat Soil Health Podcast with all of these uh, insecticides, neonics going in the ground what is it actually doing to soil health?
1: Well, that's a that's a great question, Eric. And we're, um, we have research projects in progress trying to figure that out. Um, but gleaning information from other areas, particularly um, turf grass um, and other production systems, it's clear that the more insecticides and fungicides that we put on the soil or in the soil, the more life is being limited by those pesticides. One of the... Um, driving forces in the soil health movement has been this realization that a, uh, that a healthy soil is a living soil. So the more life we can have in our soil, the better. And typically when soil health practitioners think about um, healthy soil and the animals that might be down there, they're thinking about microbes um, and worms explicitly. But coming along with soil health practices are also all this, all these arthropods. So arthropods is, is a larger group of animals that includes insects, uh, crustaceans, arachnids, and all these things that you uh, might run across. Essentially, an arthropod is anything that will crunch when you step on it. So insects, spiders, centipedes, millipedes, that type of stuff. Also mites and ticks, those type of things. Um, but these pesticides will limit that life. So if our goal is to have a strong decomposer community in crop fields to help kind of recycle the Uh, residue from the previous year's growth, insecticides will limit the populations of, say, columbolans, which are also called springtails, and those are key in recycling nutrients from the previous year's growth. So if we have fewer of those in fields, then nutrient cycling will be influenced, Um, and our research is showing that you do have fewer of those when these insecticidal seed treatments are used annually. Um, It is also the case, if you just spray an insecticide across a field, that those populations are limited. So these insecticides, whether it's coated on a seed or broadcast in an entire field, can negatively influence the life in soil, and by extension, that would extend to uh, kind of soil quality. Um, and our research in this area is kind of ongoing.
0: So, so just to kind of recap that, we're talking about applying insecticides that are going after secondary insects that may not even be present, and it may be limiting the life or even you know killing the insects that might actually be providing life and providing good nutrients for your soil right
1: yeah that's exactly right and in addition to the insects or the arthropods rather that are helping with decomposition those insecticides on the seed are, or an insecticide sprayed across the field are also limiting predator populations and a lot of the research that we've done at penn state have to do with uh predator populations and these are um arthropod predators, and that includes insects and spiders, that attack um, pest species. So the more of these predators you have in your fields, um, the less reliant you'll need to be on uh, on insecticides. So they're kind of like your allies in pest control, and our research is showing that the more insecticides you use, the fewer these predators that will be around, and then there's this kind of weird feedback. So if you have fewer predators around, then you're more likely to need more insecticides. So, so scaling back from insecticide use can help build predator populations, um, and that makes fields less vulnerable to pests and kind of more resilient should pest populations appear. Um, so all my comments so far have been really focusing on the, uh, on the insecticides, but we have colleagues that we work with that have been studying the fungicides, and it seems that fungicides, which are meant to kill fungi, can also limit life in soil. Um, some, of that, some of those fun- uh, fungus are... Um, pests, but there are also beneficial fungi out there, and there are um, things like um, mycorrhizal fungi that colonize plants and help with productivity. So the research we're doing now is trying to figure out if those fungicides are limiting fungal health, and that could actually be a detriment to uh, crop production. So the pesticides are kind of working hand-in-hand when they're on the seed The fungicidal portion is controlling the fungus, the insecticidal portion is controlling those insects, but if you have beneficial fungi or beneficial insects, we're trying to understand how much of a cost these pesticides have in a typical crop production system.
0: Again, this is the Hat Soil Health podcast uh, presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. I'm Eric Pfeiffer, and I'm joined by John Tooker with Penn State University, an extension specialist there, and in their entomology department as well. So let's let's talk. So we've been doing this for a little over 10 minutes now, and if we've got someone who's out there listening to this, and gosh, that makes sense, uh, similar to what you've done with me here, and they think, boy, how can I start to to really change this or, or think about what I'm doing here? Uh, can you talk to us about... I mean, obviously, I, I don't know that anyone's just going to up and get rid of the practice altogether. Neonics and, and these insecticides still have their place. When and where are they most effective?
1: Right. So um, they tend to be um, most effective when the insect pests are around. So... Um, I agree with you that most people aren't going to just stop using treated seeds tomorrow, but there is an intermediate step. So um, I tend to recommend to farmers that are interested in soil health to start small. So um, in Pennsylvania, we are mostly a no-till state. So about 75% of our acreage isn't tilled to begin with. So I generally run across farmers that are already doing no-till. So if you want to get to soil health, you need no-till. Uh, a diverse rotation that includes cover crops. Okay, so for farmers that want to take these small steps towards building soil health, they can they can adopt any of those practices, and they'll 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 start on this path to soil health. But an important fourth ingredient that I think um, is necessary. So that's a fourth ingredient in addition to no-till, diverse rotations with cover crops, um, is IPM. So IPM is a, a Um, kind of a a way to manage pests. It kind of provides a decision framework for managing pests. And a key to the practice is understanding your local pest populations. So if a farmer out there is interested in doing this, I would uh, suggest that that person identify um, a field, um, remove the insecticides and fungicides from that field um, as a typical uh, ingredient in their crop production recipe, but then commit to scouting that field every seven to 10 days. Maybe 10 to 14 days if they're really strapped for time. But commit to understanding what insects are active in that field. And if insects are active in that field, well go out there and count them. You can look up scouting protocols for various types of insects. And say if we're scouting uh, corn and you find um, a good number of cut plants um, from black cutworm in this field that you haven't used any seed applied insecticides. Then you can look on the internet, or you can um, call your county educator, or you can call the extension entomologist in your state and find out what is the economic threshold for black cutworm activity in my cornfield. And if your numbers exceed that um, economic threshold, then the recommendation from anybody in this little realm would be to put an insecticide out to stop that black cutworm. If, however, you drop the insecticides and black cutworm doesn't show up, then there's no necessary expense beyond the scouting expense. So you've scouted those fields. You see that nothing is taking out your corn plants. Then there's nothing to do other than revisit that field um, in the next um, seven to 14 days to find out if pest populations are there. So one thing to be clear about is that IPM is a management-intensive approach. But there's a trade-off by putting more um, kind of resources towards scouting, um, whether a farmer is doing it for his or herself, or whether they're hiring a scout, you're putting the expense towards, that, um, towards the man hours, rather than towards the insecticide. So it's a just a reallocation of input. And the assumption is, is that most years you won't need that insecticide, um, but that scouting cost is going to be extra. Um, every time you put an insecticide out, though, you're, you're spending money. So the thought is, is that the more you scout, the less insecticide you will use. And over the long term, your input costs will go down because the scouting is going to tell you when you don't need something.
0: And in addition to those input costs going down, the life of the soil will increase. And that's something that right now everyone's concerned about because they want to be able to hand this off to the next generation.
1: Oh, correct. Without question. Yeah. So if, again, soil health is the goal, then limiting... The life in the soil seems counterproductive to me and and my colleagues.
0: Again, you're listening to the Hat Soil Health Podcast here from Who's Your Ag today. I'm Eric Pfeiffer, and I'm with John Tooker. He's with Penn State University. They're a, an extension specialist there, and also uh, in their entomology department. And let's let's talk a little bit about what brought you into all of this research. Why is it that that you started really looking into Neonics, insecticides, and, and what the harmful effects that they have on the soil health.
1: Well, uh, Eric, our entry point was kind of an odd one. Um, in Pennsylvania, since we have so much no-till um, ground, and we have a fair amount of moisture compared to the rest of the country, uh, slugs are a pretty big challenge. So I was approached by a group of, kind of uh, fervent no-till uh, farmers that were really suffering from slug problems. Um, And so we started to do research on slugs at their request, and um, one of our first discoveries, um, which was made by a former graduate student named Maggie Douglas, was that um, neonicotinoid insecticides seemed to be making slug populations worse. And Maggie figured this out through a combination of field work and lab work, but the bottom line is is that when a slug feeds upon a corn or a soybean plant grown from an insecticide-treated seed that neonicotinoid insecticide is coated on the seed um, is transmitted into the um, vasculature of the plant, so it's flowing through the plant. When a slug feeds on it, it picks up a good dose of the insecticide. Importantly, slugs aren't insects. They're not even arthropods. They're in a whole different phylum called the mollusks, so they're more closely related to snails and clams than they are to insects. The reason that's relevant is because mollusks, aren't very sensitive to neonicotinoid insecticides. So the slugs consumed these insecticides, the insecticides were in their body, but they didn't limit the slugs life or behavior. But when the slugs were out in the field and then they were attacked by the predators that like to eat slugs, and these predators tend to be beetles, then the insecticide moved from the slug to the beetle. And what Maggie found is that a lower beetle population where we have a lot of slugs in insecticide coated seeds Uh, sorry, and insecticide-coated seeds were used in that field, then we have worse slug populations because those slugs are released from that control provided by predators. So that's kind of the general description of the research that we we did. So we got pulled down this path by by the interaction between slugs, insecticide-treated seed, the crops grown from those seeds, and the predators that can help limit slug populations. So the bottom line that came out of that research was that if you want to control slug populations, one of the best things you can do is get insecticides out, because insecticides, whether they're coated on the seed or sprayed across an entire field, aren't helping with your slug control anyway, again, because we have a mollusk and not an insect. So that led us to start thinking about what else could be happening in these fields, what else could these neonics be doing, and now we're asking the question of how greatly do they limit kind of the soil life we're trying to grow and what are the downsides of that. My
0: thanks again to Associate Professor of Entomology and Extension Specialist John Tooker at Penn State University for joining us on this month's Soil Health Podcast, a couple of events from the CCSI Soil Health Events Calendar, a webinar on benefits of intercropping in organic systems, will take place on April 2nd, Tuesday, and then the following Tuesday, April 9th, another webinar, Aligning Soil and Human Health. You can find more information about soil health events by visiting ccsin.org slash events, or you can sign up for the newsletter to show up in your inbox each month. Today's podcast has been presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative of Indiana and a production of Hoosier Ag Today, Indiana's leading
1: farm network. I'm Eric Pfeiffer.